I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the Battle of Corinne, the final book in the Legends of Dune trilogy. Dude, the epic final conclusion of this trilogy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. So much happens in this story. <laughs> it's, I feel like that's an understatement. <laughs> it, it totally is because, I mean, you know, Kevin J. Anderson and um, Brian Herbert are just tying up loose ends all over the place yeah. and, and setting us up uh, for what the prelude to Dune, I guess, is what the next series is. So that all these... And they're neatly tied up. Well, they're maybe not all neatly tied up, but many of them are. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, you really, you really got to pay attention while you read this one. Yeah. I'll say, I'll yeah. say. I, now just a reminder for our audience, if, if you need a refresher on the Battle of Corinne or any of the previous books we've done, you can check out our other episode called Dune and 10, which will air just in time with this. And that's a, a brief around 10 minute summary. Of the book, so if you need a refresher or or anything, you can check that out there. By the way, pronunciation of the way they pronounced in the audiobook was Corin, but you're Corin. saying you're saying Corin. Yeah, okay. they say they say Corin, the Battle Corin. of Corin. You know where I'm getting it is derived from this is Corino. Oh, so you're thinking Corin? Corin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. That's well, you know the, the audiobook. Um, Whoever did the audiobook is pronouncing it Corin, so whatever. And I'm, I'm thinking Carino is, that, that's how they pronounce it in the movie or okay. the miniseries. Like, who knows? Yeah. You know? <laughs> hey, whatever. Our folks, folks listening to us will understand what we mean. That's so. right. Yeah. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. yeah. That's basically it. Yeah, here we are with our pronunciation thing again. Didn't we have one other episode we did that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. think so. so <laughs> but, uh, well, very good. Uh, just another thing for our audiences, uh, iTunes has been featuring us in their what's hot in literature section, uh, for the last two months. And we've been moving up and moving up, which is uh, absolutely awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, and a lot due to you guys listening. Yeah. All due to them yeah. listening. Yeah. Uh, we would really appreciate it if, you, if you're listening through iTunes or if you're really enjoying the show, mm-hmm. if you could head over to the iTunes feed and just like leave a review or a star rating or something. Cause I know that that'll really help us can keep up there on the charts and keep uh, in the spotlight a little bit. That'd, yeah, that'd be great. absolutely. And we're thankful for those of you that have been donating to our spice habit. Yeah. Thank so I'm um, becoming more addicted as we go. So <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> Let, let's just take a, a, a quick brief look 
at the story that we we have here. And I know it's gonna it's hard, but just just real quick. Do we want do we want to give like our initial impressions of this? Is that kind of where you want to go, or you just want to do you want to do just the basic outline, small like so? Okay, it's fifty eight years since the last book. Yeah, which is an insane jump. I you know what I'm gonna admit it, Jim David. I don't know about you, but some of these time jumps really do bother me. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not that I don't understand why they're doing it or the necessity of it because they're trying to cover a lot of ground. But I'm like, wait, sixty years ago? Um, what twenty years just passed? I mean, there's just a lot of time jumps in here. I remember from the first time I read it, and, and uh, you know, um, even now I had a horrible time at the beginning of the book with just like keeping track of everyone. And, and it just like, I think what really threw me off the most was Quentin Butler is because he's not actually a Butler and there were all Harkonnens, you know, he, he married into the, the family. Butlers serve no man. Yeah. And they, and they changed their name and that just kept throwing me off and off. Thank goodness for the, the family trees at the back of the book. It's the only way I kept it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we have we have a big thing of basically the humans fight back and and kind of force the the machines back to one planet, and then we have another jump of twenty years, and everyone's kind of grown stagnant, and it's just kind of like it's a story of the yeah. life in the in that in that time period because that's happened before in the prior books. Yeah, now yeah. the time jumps don't bother me at all. No, I they don't. I guess I don't mind them as long as I'm aware of them. Right. That's true. You um, know, Jim, something you said, it had to be, it was either the last podcast we did or the podcast before, obviously. Um, you mentioned that you were waiting to see how, you mentioned that in the, I guess in the original Dune series, there's this rift between the Harkonnen and the Atreides family. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, and you mentioned that. And of course, I don't remember any of that from the original trilogy because it's been <laughs> so long since I've read it. Um, but, <laughs> And it's all the spice. Um, but, uh, the, I kept saying, okay, now they have to resolve this. So I kept expecting, like, they really held on to that relationship almost until the very end of the book. Like, those guys were best buds. And then it's just like, all hell breaks loose, <laughs> you know, there at the end. Yeah. And, but I was kind of looking for him, like, okay, Jim mentioned this, it's going to happen somewhere in there. And, <laughs> But, yeah, and it happened in a big way, didn't it? <laughs> oh, it certainly did. Uh, Jim, how about you? Uh, just an overview of anything that we, we kind of just gave a brief overview here, but anything else? Um, not really. The, the, uh, I guess the thing that I really was impressed about was how, uh, you know, the saying, the best laid plans of mice and men, mm -hmm. uh, it just seemed to be happening all over the place. Uh, everybody had their plans. They had what they wanted to do in place. And then some little incident would take place that would just completely derail everything. So, Oh yeah. Let's talk about some of those incidents. Like the machines were trapped on one planet. Basically they couldn't leave and humanity couldn't come in and get them. And it was kind of like a standoff for 20 years. And then they came up with these kind of uh, innovative ways to get at humanity. And as it turns out, they weren't created, but the ideas weren't machine ideas. It was, uh, a human character that, that kind of devised the plan. So we have the, the ominous scourge, uh, yeah. that, that, which is this disease that just like rampages across yeah. all human life. 
yeah. and then uh, so that's the first one. What, what did you think? And, of, and, who think is, of that? and who created that again? That was um, Wrecker Van. Yeah. yeah, but it was York Thur's idea. Yes, York Thur. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah, York Thur. So his idea. Um, what do I think of the scourge? Yeah, uh, it was horrible, man. I mean, when that I, Jim, you tweeted or you Facebook a comment about how in the first quarter of the book, it was this, this, there was this huge tragedy that happened. And, you know, I, this, the decimation of, of Butler's, I guess, Butler, one of Butler's sons. Um, and even you aren't sure about the daughter for a little bit, but just how, like, it just, this, this vampid and rapid devastation of entire human populations. Uh, was really dreary and hard way to kind of begin the book, in my opinion. Uh, I'll tell you what, the first uh, chapter almost put me out of the book. Um, if you recall, it was Erasmus continuing to ex- do his experiments on humans, mm-hmm. and then they described what he had done to Wrecker Van, mm-hmm. and that you know, he had taken off his limbs and then put them on someone else. So they had four <laughs> arms and four legs. And then he, and then Erasmus ordered, uh, this thing to feed, um, uh, Wrecker Van, because he couldn't feed himself, of course. And Erasmus was trying to get Wrecker to regrow his limbs using, uh, amphibian. Uh, chemicals or something of some kind and and the cookies were made from human flesh that was being fed to uh, <laughs> wrecker van who was thoroughly enjoying them and wanted more yeah they were and some rewards yeah I, i'll tell you what that very first uh <laughs> opening scene almost put me off and then if it had continued that way with those kind of descriptions in the book i don't think i'd have made it through they do a pretty good job of dangling these really horrific things and then moving on to something else. And, and they don't visit if they re, if they revisit the setting, they don't revisit it in the same amount of detail. I guess figuring that they've established that and they allow it, they allow that kind of ringing to, to kind of settle in the back of your mind and know that that's kind of what happened. They may make subtle allusions to it, but never as much detail as they do, you know, the first time or two that you encounter it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank goodness for that because yeah, thank, I, I, I'm really glad I got to finish reading this. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that was that definitely was a hard opening. But mm-hmm. yeah, what do you think? Uh, this ties in since you were talking about the scourge. So they seem to like wipe out the scourge, take care of the scourge. Spice, they get everyone in the galaxy addicted <laughs> to spice, right? And Venki up Enterprise absolutely loving it because absolutely they're the only supplier, only real supplier of spice. Um, the scourge also bring re- reopens a slave trade for humanities because now we're no longer relying on any machines. Eventually, they kind of end up there. We aren't going to rely on any machines. So we're going to rely on human slavery, which brings slavery or the slavers back into Arrakis. Um, we have the scourge comes and they take care of it, but then reappears later on as in a slightly different form. I didn't pick up on this when I read the book. Do we know how that second strange scourge got introduced? Uh, from, from the way that they explained it, it was, you know, uh, 
it was on Rossick, which was the the place where Venki got a lot of their medicals. Uh, and and where the sorcerers are from. And the sorcerers are from there too. And, and the idea was that the same way that these medical advances happen from biological things, just like mutating on this planet's harsh conditions, the virus came there and just like lay dormant somewhere and someone came across a strand of it that mutated with the mm-hmm. environment and with the chemicals there and to become like a super version of itself and, right. and even harder to destroy. But only confined to that planet. Yes. You know, it never gets off that planet right. and also the solution is found on the planet. Right. This is something, this is, this is something that's very different from all the rest of the Legends of Dune series that really stuck out to me because in almost all other situations, what's the deus ex machina? <laughs> Even though there's no machines aren't, aren't actually saving things. <laughs> right. But, but it's the spice. Right. right. Spice comes in, solves all our problems. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you can kind of see that they're growing into the reverend mothers. Right. Which are a very spice driven organization. Although, uh, mm-hmm. but Na- although Naomi's sister is not very reverend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm glad when she died, I was like, yeah. To see, to see yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, that was great rejoicing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in this situation, it's not. The spice that solves the problem. The spice doesn't create the first reverend mother, which is, I mean, they use spice and poison and stuff to become reverend mothers later, but it's not, it's not what does it. Right. I thought that was really interesting that I was happy that they finally took this thing that they keep. It was like anytime anything went wrong, spice, spice, spice. And then this one instance, they were like something different. What is it? It was like these limestone pits. Is that kind of where they pulled the cure from? Well, she was, yeah, she was cured from the limestone pit, but then it transformed her into a reverend mother. And then she created the, the antibodies in herself. And right. Right. Which brings up a question. I'm wondering now, I thought the water of life came from, uh, Arrakis from the worms. It does. That's why, but that's kind of what I was saying. Like in the future, the Reverend Mothers are very spice dependent, but their origin is not one of spice dependency. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the I case. said Naomi, I meant Norma, but go ahead. So that, that pool then that they found on Rusek that brought, um, uh, Raquela back, that's not the water of life? No. The water of life is, uh, when they take a, Young sandworm, I forget if they call it at that point a sand trout or not, and they drown. Right, and then they take it's it barfs up this fluid, and that's the water of life. Right. Okay, that's what I thought. Then, how did the water on Rusek uh, give her her Reverend Mother powers? Because, from my understanding, it brought her back to life, and it also gave her prescience. Uh, it didn't give her presence. It, 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 what it, what it, what it did here is, so the way that the water of life works is it puts the body in such a, a harsh, like, uh, live or die situation. Okay. Know? All right. And the spice helps with that in, in this situation. But she, the virus had put her in a live or die situation. And then the water provided the catalyst to allow her to change her, 
cells or whatever. And they don't ever explain what it is in the water that the, just the minerals or whatever right. allow her to change that. And she realizes it's, realizes it's slower. Um, I think what you're seeing as the, uh, pre-science is, is the, she opens the, um, I forget what they call it, but there's a name for it that they'll, they'll say in the later books where, uh, the genetic memory of all the females. Right. And it's because of all the knowledge of her females that she can kind of predict the future. So it's not quite pre-science yet. You know, that, that, the spice does that. This is more just like, uh, they talk a lot about it in, uh, God Emperor of Dune. In fact, it's pretty much all the book talks about is how, you know, you look at the past and you can predict the future. You don't need okay. to be able to see the future to know what's going to happen if you have enough memory. Right. So uh, okay. I, I think that's basically what we saw from her there. Mm. But it, I mean, some amazing things happen. She can t- take in a poison and use her, her mental ability and control of her cells to break it down and turn it into a, 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 a cure and then set right. the cure up. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, another, another incident that's kind of tied into that is, um, we talk about, we've been talking a lot about this. What do we call her? The mother, the Reverend Mother, the uh, transformation of Norma Senva into the, uh, guidance system for the ships. Yeah. Is, um, was an interesting transformation. And, um, interesting, those spices from Arrakis, the, the, the creature is not created on Arrakis. Yeah. Initially. Although Arrakis is kind of its home port. Right. Um, do they explore, I, I forget, in the Dune series, do they explore these creatures even further? Uh, eventually. Are they, are they, are they just kind of there? Well, so in the, in, in the far future, the spacing guild controls all travel. Like humanity doesn't travel like they do in these books where it takes them months anymore. Right. There's giant ships that then smaller ships fly into. And then those bigger ships, jump from place to place, like on a path. And so it's like catching a train. Right. And then the, the smaller ships come out and fly around the solar system and stuff. And they're all the bigger ships are guided by navigators. And that's right. what, that's what Norma Senva turned into. So she's like the first the navigator. First navigator. So I think uh, one of the things I was reading a lot about on, on Goodreads and stuff was, uh, how they, everyone was like, Oh, everything gets so tied up here in these books and like the origin for everything is just kind of laid out. We've got the reverend mothers. We've got the sook doctors, the navigators, the Fremen, uh, the mentats, like it's the sword masters. It's all like right here. And some of them get more attention than others. Uh, but in rereading it, I thought, well, there's a lot that's not like, you just see the very, very beginning of it. You don't really You'll get, see how it gets from here to there. Right. And that's where I th- the, the new schools of Dune series that's still being written fills in. And I think it'll be interesting when we go back and we read Sisterhood of Dune and Mentats of Dune to come back to these characters and kind of learn how they kind of become like the Reverend Mothers kind of really initiate themselves. I've been really excited for Mentats of Dune to find out how uh, Gilbertus like gets himself explains his abilities right to re- to the rest of society. So and, you don't see that, yeah. And we never find out what he did with Erasmus. I know you you just know that he has a copy of him, right? His, his, mm-hmm. so. Do we ever find out uh, what happens to the beam that gets shot off, uh, Corn? Possibly. Okay. <laughs> 
there's no definitive answer to that question, but in the original series, they talk of a huge threat elsewhere in the galaxy and they allude to what it might be. And you don't, you don't have, it it could be that beam. It could be, um, in, I wasn't, I believe it was the machine crusade. Uh, no, it would be, uh, the battle, uh, the Butlerian Jihad when the, I think it was the earth ominous set a bunch of copies of himself really far away and one went to Arrakis, but there were a bunch. We don't know where they went. Right. So, so a lot of storylines that could be explored yet. Right. Uh (laughs) So, uh, basically, but I thought it was kind of an interesting, again, as you said, not every single thing in these, in this trilogy is tied up. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, are there other characters or other people that we should we we, we kind of mentioned Norma we mentioned um we mentioned uh what Rakella um and we didn't really talk about uh Tasia Senva uh yet do we need to talk about her uh, I mean she had influence in Raquel's story I mean what do you think Jim I didn't like her very much. No, she was a lot she, like her mother. She was, she was a con- but yeah, she was a worse, total worse. control freak. Yeah, worse than her mother. <laughs> but <laughs> well, she was wor- in, in one way. She was um, she was as bad as her mother, but she was a little bit worse than that. She, when they actually were finding a cure, she was poisoning people and killing them. That yeah. just made that just totally pissed me off. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ring her back. <laughs> she just did not want to lose control. Yeah. Of of what she had. And the closer that it seemed Raquel was getting to gaining more control and having cures and doing these things that she just kind of panicked and, and started doing all the wrong things to keep her power. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But what, what do you think about, um, Rihanna Butler when she comes out of her, dream vision of Serena and goes in this ridiculous crusade of absolutely destroying anything mechanical, no matter how good it is. And this thing just kind of, I think it was the one storyline that just kind of perturbed me because it was so idiotic and she had gained this huge, huge following of people that just weren't thinking through what they were doing. Like someone needed to be a scapegoat. So this was a good scapegoat. Um, I, w- I was kind of, I was kind of pissed at it. At the same time, I had to say, well, is this kind of the way we are as humanity? You know? Yeah. I, I felt bad for Raina at first. Uh, you know, here, what, what was she, 11 years old? Right. Yeah. Hiding in a closet, scared to death. Her parents are gone and her entire world is shattering and she's going to have to figure out how to fend for herself. Um, then she had these visions and comes out of it and starts beating up machines and gathering followers. And then at that point I was, I was pretty okay with her and understanding where she was coming from. But then you could see as time went on, it was more also a power thing for her too. Mm-hmm. because she had gathered all these followers and then she started using her power to try to influence um 
the way the government was being operated, the way battles were being fought, and things like that. And, you know, I I know that Vore did a great job trying to put her in her place, but, you know, they I think the people started seeing her as the second coming of Serena, perhaps. Right, right. You know, uh, she uh, bothered me a little bit, too, in her selective um, – Initially, it was like all technology is bad, all machine technology, but not ships. Ships are a necessary evil. We can excuse them because we need them. Yeah. You know, and so this idea that, that there was, there was kind of this duology going on in her, this, this little, this two, it was a split thing that we're against machines, but only when they, uh, we don't need them. I thought Vor pointed that out at the end of the book right. several times. He said she doesn't. I think at one point he even said she doesn't realize how hypocritical she is. She she thinks all machines are evil, yet she uses ships to get around. And then uh, what was the other? What the, she says the a spirit of Serena guides her, yet she believed that Serena was alive in the bridge of Hrithgar. And, uh, there was like another one too. I don't remember what it was, but it was just like her words didn't make sense. And he's like, I don't understand. I hated that character of the whole book. Anytime it came to her, I was just like, uh, <laughs> like this, this story. So, something I, I, I realized of all of them, I remembered key elements of this book going into it. I remembered that someone got turned into a Cymac that didn't want to. I remembered, uh, about how Ominous was captured, untrapped on Corin, and that humanity stormed after it and then formed the, the empire. But I didn't remember any of the little stuff and like, or who started what type of thing. So I knew that, I knew that Norma started, uh, the guild, but there were three women that could have started the sisterhood. And, and each time I wasn't really sure who it was going to be. Actually, I forgot about Raquel, uh, having her transformation because so when Norma first discovers her powers, she talks about seeing all of her female ancestry and that's how she makes herself the culmination of beauty of all of them. And then when, uh, Rihanna or, or Raina goes through her process, she speaks of, visions of the past females and that's why she thinks she sees serena so in my mind i couldn't remember and i was like is she the first reverend mother i don't know so uh that that part was kind of exciting to me to rediscover oh yeah definitely mm-hmm. well let's talk we should talk a little bit about the cymax because we haven't really discussed them uh we, we haven't talked about them or maybe even omnius as much maybe as we could have but let's talk about the the cymax here and their role kind of in this story. Uh, David, do you want to kind of talk about this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, early on in this book, the Cymex rebel, or was that at the end of the last one? No, they had, uh, they, had- they had rebelled at the end of the last one, but in this one they move, they, they are kind of attacked. We start the story, they're being attacked again by Omnis. Yeah. Omnis withdrawals, right. and then they... Then they say, well, we got to get out of here because if he comes again, we are totally screwed. Yeah. So they end up going to the, um, the, 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 the cogitors, uh, kind That's of, right. yeah, yeah. So where they kind of, uh, reside and kind of take over that world. Right. So basically the, the, the Cymex are re 
trying to figure out ways to rebuild their army here. Right. And uh, they really do a lot of that in that 20-year span that we jump in the center of the book. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting when uh, Agamemnon kind of reviewed himself and realized he had become what he saw as just as laxed as the empire that he overthrew had become. Right. And his complacency with just kind of trying to survive. Right. Um, and basically they capture Quentin Butler and, and force him to become a, yeah, he's on a scouting mission with blood, right? What, um, I forgot what his first name is, but yeah. Yeah. The the uh, great descendant of the original blood. Yeah. Yeah. Who was not a good guy. And this guy is, he's a good guy. Yeah. 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 But it's just kind of interesting trying to keep them straight sometimes. Like, wait, wasn't blood a bad guy <laughs> in, in the machine, in the machine crusade? <laughs> That's the, the, but, the, the so butler in Kachan. Yeah. yeah. It's so long. I, 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 I thought that was interesting the way they tried to brainwash him into helping them. I'm just like, dude, and talking about a tie into the, what the last novel, the whole laser thing. Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, they, 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 they tease him with so much pleasure that he doesn't even know what he's saying. And he just like lets out all the secrets of the jihad and, or the army of humanity and the lasers being, if you shoot a laser at a, at a Holtzman shield, a Holtzman shield, it's like an atomic chain reaction and this horrible thing. And so the Cymex are poised to really take over again. If they use this technology, uh, this old technology. So one of my favorite scenes was when, when they go and Dante's leading this whole, they, they stumble across, um, Butler's son. And so Butler is, of course, Simek at this point and he warns them to yeah. drop the shields just before the lasers. And I'm on the edge of my seat saying, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Get through it. So it was excellent writing, in my opinion. It kind of kept me there. Jim, did you have any comment on that, that whole Simek? Oh, yeah. The, the, the hubris of, Agamemnon was just incredible. I mean, this this guy thought he was completely indestructible. He could do whatever he wanted to do, uh, have all those slaves, and then, um, you know, uh, towards the end of the book where he put out the ships with the two million hostages on it. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That was yeah. Erasmus. Right. Um but the way that that he said, you know, I'm going to rule this entire galaxy and no, nothing is going to stop me. And he absolutely thought so. And then he killed the cogitors, uh, almost all the cogitors. Um, and, and then later on, of course, he regretted it because he wished he had had them around to experiment on later. Um, enslave the cogitors handlers and coerce them to work for him. And it, it, the guy was just scary. And of course, Juno, um, her cruelty was, uh, in, was, uh, amazing. Um, those two together, if they had turned out winning, it would have been a big problem. Oh yeah. Mo most definitely. Um, you know, it, there, there's this little, I just have this really small sympathy, sympathy for Agamemnon, Agamemnon, I can't even say his name, but for that Simac, um, the big A. Um, and you know, I, I have a little bit of sympathy because he so desperately wants to continue his lineage. 
uh, and to kind of reconcile for the right or wrong reasons with his son. And his son comes giving him exactly what he wants mm-hmm. as a ploy. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, there's just a little bit of, it just twerks me a little bit uh, that, that he, this, this has happened and that he obviously was deceived by it. And we were meant to, I mean, you obviously don't want Agamemnon to win, but, but at the same time, I kind of feel a little bit bad for him, you know, because here's a father who's trying to raise a son. His son kind of, Disowns him and no, the prodigal son comes home, but he's not really there for to be redeemed, you know. Yeah. Um, hmm. But it's kind of, I, but it kind of, it's like it's that trope that you kind of, you kind of do. It's a little bit of you understand the father part of that a little bit. But. Yeah. Well, he and and he absolutely would not listen to anybody's advice on that, hmm. and and it surprised me how Agamemnon let his guard down so completely. Uh, yeah. That, that, that was incredible. Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I kind of liked that for a moment there, Vorian didn't have to backstab his dad. Like he was able to face killing his father head on and he was gone. He was going to backstab him and kill him when he wasn't expecting it. But then, Quentin came in and uh, took care of it for him. Well, he didn't, I mean, Vorian's the one who killed him in the end, but he, it was no longer, it wasn't a surprise attack. Like right. I, he was able to face his father and be like, look, I'm killing you in the, in a way that like you don't die as a, as any type of hero. Like I'm just throwing you out the window. Right. Uh, this isn't a battle. This is your week and you can't do anything about this. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of puts it in his place. Yeah. Um, you know, well, I, I'll, go, go ahead, Jim. Well, well, Vor wanted, did not want Agamemnon to suffer. Okay. At mm-hmm. first. And then, and when Quentin came in, if I recall correctly, he was going to make sure that, um, Agamemnon did suffer for at least a portion of, of the problems that That's he caused. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Agamemnon didn't, or excuse me, uh, Vorian did not want that. He wanted to, he wanted it to be, done and over with and then as we saw he would deal with the regrets about that later mm-hmm. so you know i thought it was interesting because they can uh Vori himself acknowledges at one point in the book that he may have killed as many people as the cymex had mm-hmm. throughout and that's an interesting being being the son of a cymex it's kind of there's a little bit of irony in that even and this brings bring, bring brought one of the big ethical quandaries of the book because uh and this is kind of the whole um probably one of the the, the hardest scenes later on in the book is when that that whole rift happens between with Harkin and him and the Atreides line um he so wants to get omnius at any cost you know doesn't matter if there's 2 million lives out there we get omnius the the, um, you know, it's the ends justifies the means, right? Absolutely. And therefore the human, human life is being devalued. And at, at one time, you totally understand where Atreides is coming from because so many times they've come to this point and then turned away. And then Omnius has been around and he's continued to wreak, you know, wreak havoc on the galaxy. Um, so he wants it done once and for all. Um, 
but does that mean sacrificing all the lives? And that's a huge quandary. I, I, you know, I'm glad I'm not involved with military decisions like that, but at one point you understand Harkonnen's decision to kind of come up against Vorian at that point, even though it's, you, I kind of sided with Vorian on it, but. Yeah. Well, you can see that, uh, Abelard's, uh, compassion all the way through, um, and how, how it led to that. He went to the planet with, uh, Tisha. He wanted to, he wanted to save the people. Tisha was just, I'm going to pick out the best ones and we're, they're going to take them with us. And oh yeah, I forgot about that scene. Let the re- let the rest of them eat cake, you know. Uh, he had a he had a lot of compassion, um, and and loyalty to his ideals rather than loyalty to his commander. Right. And it it led to his downfall. And as you said, I kind of agree with Vorian's idea. You got to remember, Vorian had been fighting this war for a hundred years. Right. He has seen billions of deaths caused. Yeah. He's ca- he's and, caused it and he's also witnessed it from Omnius and Yeah. Right. And in order to end this thing once and for all to sacrifice 2 million slaves whose quality of life was horrible anyway. Right. Um you know and if truth were known, if you went on those slave ships and talked to them, they were probably begging for death just to get released from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's a little bit, it juxtaposes the scene where, um, oh, who, who's the elite fighters that kind of come in and sword masters. Yeah. The sword masters. There was a name for them. I forget, but the sword masters, that one planet where that one sword master was taken captive and he thinks that the, the jihad has come to save them and really, you know, Vorian's up there to nuke the planet. You know, uh, you have that juxtaposed against something like that, where yeah. there are people that are kind of fighting for the cause and they're just wiped out along with everyone else because we're, we're taking over these planets and we're eliminating all the omniospheres. And the only thing that's going to be left is one in corner. That was a sad, a sad moment when yeah. he. You know, he fights and he's intelligent enough of a, you know, he's a, a, a skilled fighter and he realizes they're not actually coming for me. They're yeah. Like, well, that's a yeah, sad we're, moment. We're all dead. Yeah. So, um, I think that, that there's really just one more big or two, like one more big section for us to cover. And that's, as you can see, we've been talking about everything, everything. And there's so much we haven't covered. Go I ahead. know. But like, uh, character wise, Omnius, Erasmus, Gilbertus, yeah, we do, and Serena too, and Serena or whatever. Yeah, Serena, the, the clone of Serena. Jim, I, I, I'd be be happy to hear you take this because I know how much you love the Erasmus uh, Gilbertus relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, it went sour here uh, in this book for me because Gilbertus had had lost his humanity. Um, for the most part. And then when he tried to have a relationship with the Serena clone, Erasmus did a lot of things, whatever he could do to kind of put a stop to this, all the way up to the point of putting her on one of those slave ships. Mm-hmm. 
uh-huh. to use her use her as a bargaining chip. And <laughs> uh, the I what really surprised me is that Gilbertus did not completely rebel against Erasmus for that. Mm-hmm. I was I was so much expecting that to happen and yeah. it just never did. I think that I think he understood cuz he's a mentat. Like he understood the logic cuz he saw the video that they sent, you know, saying like look here's Serena don't attack. Like I think he understood that. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. that's why he let it go. I think he would have he was pissed at first, but I kind of got the impression that, you know, logically as a mentat, he understood the reasoning behind it. I noticed, I thought, you know, as much as Erasmus doesn't like this, he's not making the same mistake. Like, he's learned he can't just outright, like, he tried to reason with uh, Gilbertus, but he never outright just got rid of her. You know what I mean? He put her on that ship, and, like, there were reasons for it, and he hoped he understood, but he didn't, like, outright just, like, "Um, no, we got to get rid of her. Well, you know, and he he learned from uh, book one when he did that with Mannion. Yeah. Yeah, and he got rid of Mannion, and, whoa, look what he started. You know, I was was thinking that same thing. (laughs) The entire trilogy is because of of that little single act, you know, and um, so he did did learn, and uh, even though he doesn't totally understand, and he also, I mean, we talk about Erasmus a little bit. Erasmus has developed. There's a humanity to, uh, there's a humanity to him, despite his horribleness as a robot. They, he, he's learned to be compassionate. He cares about Gilbertus in a way that's not robotic at all. Um, and that surprises him even. Yeah. He expresses he, joy and fear. Yeah. And he does things that are kind of irrational for robots. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. it was kind of neat to see that. One of my favorite yeah. parts is his resurrection, but oh. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was only reserved for Gilbertus. Any exactly any, any other life was like it had no meaning. Well, you know? he, and he he really hasn't changed from book one, has he, Jim? No, not at all. <laughs> he just absolute garbage. <laughs> Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I agree. I mean, he grew, he's grown humanity wise, but I really, the characters, it, I think that that speaks to the longevity of the machines, mm. you know? Well, he's just missing that spark of life, you know, that, you know, at, at some point, a person's got to say, you know, this has got to stop. Okay. And that was not in him at all. He was going to continue to pursue his agenda no matter who it hurt and as long as it was not Gilbertus. Right. Well, as we wrap up this section, let's just quick cover the character of Omnius. How has he changed since since this started? Which one? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And therein lies the story. Yeah, I mean, once you get to Corn, what we have three Omniuses kind of at work. My favorite, my favorite is the Omnius war that happens among all three of them. Mm-hmm. But, um, we don't know that there's three of them until later in the later in the book. Yes. That's, that's what I thought was interesting. Like you don't even re- you keep you keep hearing Erasmus saying, you know, Omnius is acting, uh, you know, illogical. He's not. He doesn't sound like he, here he's had these two other versions of himself that are that are not integrated into the system. Yeah, and they're arguing, and that's why he's kind of like reacting differently. Yeah, yeah, and so the original Omnius kind of uh, 
we don't know for sure, quote unquote, saved himself by beating himself out there at the end. But it was just an interesting. The other part I liked it with the Omnius is when he tries to create art. Yeah. I thought it was kind of humorous. And none of it's ever, ever <laughs> yeah. I love the descriptions of yeah. Omnius. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, of course. In, now, if I, try, if I tried to create art, uh, I, I would expect similar reviews. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we, we really should move on. There's a lot more we could say here. Why don't we move on to some favorite quotes we have? Jim, this is your segment. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, our favorite quotes from the book. I'll, how about you, David? Start it off. Okay, so uh, I I've got two, and the first one is justice may be impartial, but righteousness is deeply personal. And uh, Abelard Harkonnen said that, and I thought, man, that, I mean, that kind of like spoke to what was going to happen in the future. It may, it, that almost made more sense to me later after I, you know, we got to the end, uh, for mm-hmm. that one. So I thought that was even, even taken out of context. I thought it was really cool. Uh, the next one's from, uh, the swordmaster Istian Gross, the, the Guinez mercenary that we follow throughout the story here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, victory, defeat, these are imposters, illusions, fight toward your own death. And this life cannot count you among its hordes of slaves. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's that, you know, slavery is a huge theme within this trilogy. Mm-hmm. Slavery to our, like, slavery to convenience, slavery to each other, to machines. To know, spice. To the spice. <laughs> like, it's a huge thing. And here he's like, you know, basically the only freedom is to, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't even talk at all about the people in Arrakis. We totally, oh, we, totally, we totally skipped over the Arrakis storyline. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do we want to go back? Anything do, you want to touch there? Yeah. Well, you know, it's just uh, Ishmael and his uh, – what's what's his stepson's name? Elhim. Yeah. Something like that. The, it is – that you, you see the beginning of the Fremen. You see how they're almost torn out of – they almost lose themselves yeah. with the slavers and with the way that um Elim Elim is going and um and Ishmael's is trying really hard. Um uh, I love the Battle of the Sandworms. We that that's probably again one of the more memorable mm. parts. Um and but just and also the uh, slaver um when they attack the slaver camp and uh and Ishmael comes and cuts the guy's throat and drains his water. And there's kind of this blood, this bloodlust, this this blood water type uh, ritual that kind of goes on there soon after. But it's the same guy that he saved 20 years earlier, and that's just mm-hmm. infuriating. And you totally understand where he's coming from. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, the parting of the ways for for the old ways and the new ways. Uh, you know, Elhim as the naive was in charge of the tribe. It was his job to to lead them in the direction that would benefit them the most. And Ishmael did not want to be part of that. He simply wanted to be a desert dweller, a nomad. Um and there was no resolution there. Do they and do so, they ever did they ever come to a definitive conclusion by the end? Uh well yeah. Uh, I mean after the battle. Ishmael just takes the people that want to go with him and they go off into the deep desert. 
And is that the is that kind of the establishing of the Fremen? The real Fremen. The real. I Fremen. mean, you saw that he was instigating it before when it, he said, "We are the free men." Uh, but in the future, Arrakis is a populated planet, like, with, and there are a lot of people there. So you see that, you know, those people who have conformed and live in the cities are old right. desert people, like ancestors of desert people, and, right? And they're when we get to Dune. And when we're, we're really on Arrakis a lot. And then in, in the prelude to Dune, I don't think we deal with Arrakis all that much, but in Dune, you'll, you'll see that the, the Fremen are, are almost like not mythological, but like whispers. Are they real? Are there really people that live out there anymore? Right. Like we don't really know. Right. So. Right. And then there's the ones that are the ones that are coming from, uh, Elhim's side that, are despised by the Fremen mm. for for collaborating with the spiced harvesters and for collaborating with the Harkonnens and the the Atreides to right. to keep the spice flowing. Right. Yeah. yeah so that and was. I a, think, go ahead. And I think it's uh, Ishmael. Uh, you see the Fremen uh, pretty well given up on their quest to stop spice harvesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, well, that. Anyways, back to the back quotes. To quotes. I, 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 felt, I felt like we did. We should at least address that because that does obviously play into the greater story later on. And right, and uh, it, it was a good. I always enjoy when we come back. I always enjoyed coming back to him as a character when we hit that. But yeah, hey Scott, so, how about how about the quotes that uh, stuck with you? Okay, well, I have a couple here. Um, uh, this this one quote I had is from Princess Eurelian. And it's in the preface to the history of the Butlerian Jihad. Um, and it says, um, the gravest error of a thinking person can make is to believe that one particular version of history is absolute fact. History is recorded by a series of observers, none of whom is impartial. The facts are distorted by sheer passage of time, and especially in the case of the Butlerian Jihad – Thousands of years of humanity's dark ages, deliberate misrepresentations by religious sects, and an inevitable corruption that comes from the accumulation of careless mistakes. The wise person then views history not as a set of lessons to be learned, choices and ramifications to be considered and discussed, and mistakes that should never again be made. So I thought that was an excellent kind of quote to kind of view of history. So that's yeah. one of the ones. And Irulan's one of my favorite characters in the whole series. Yeah. <clears throat> Is that, he, and that comes in, he comes in later. It's a woman. What, she, she comes in later. Yeah. I guess so. Princess, right? Princess, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> a, he, so. uh, the uh, next one, um, I love this quote. It wasn't necessarily real significant, but I love this quote by Agamemnon. He goes, it's often been said that it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. That's the fetus talk. I intend to rule everywhere, not just in hell. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I'd, I'd like that one. And then I have two others, if I can have two others there. Um, then the, the third one I have is, and this is from uh, Bashir Harkonnen. Um, I said, in truth, it is better to remember, is it better to remember or to forget? We must balance this decision between our history and our humanity. And I think that's so relevant because there's certain parts in our history that you kind of want to forget, but there's parts that you shouldn't forget. And there's that whole balance. Of what do you tell? What don't you tell? I think of that when you study like family history. There's stuff in family history that do you let die with family history or do you kind of write it down and preserve it for future generations? And how important is that? <laughs> um, and then the last one is from the, uh, swordmaster Istian, Istian Goss. 
When others place the impossible expectations on a man, he must redefine his goals and forge his own path. That way, at least someone is satisfied. I thought that that was another good quote. But, yeah. <laughs> um, Jim, how about you? Okay, well, I came up with a couple, and Scott, you stole one of them. Oh, did which, I? I'm which so is, sorry about it. Which is okay. Um, the the Agamemnon quote you you used, which I thought was really great. It um, it spoke to me of the of the hubris of this guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I have two that kind of go together from Reina. Uh, the first one is technology has a seductive nature. We assume that advances in this realm are always improvements. We are deluding ourselves. Oh. And the second one that goes along that's a good with that, rep. can I stop? Is, that's a that's a good quote for today, by the way. In today's yeah, age, oh gosh, yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Second quote. The second one is kind of in the same vein. Technology should have freed men from the burdens of life. Instead, it imprisoned him. Get off your iPhone, David. Come on. <laughs> now, Scott, wasn't it you that said something about? Challenging somebody to not use their phone. Yeah, um, for I did a. Hours? I, yeah, I did a. Uh, uh, this is back in December. I did a uh, with my students. I did a what I call a hack your life challenge, where I challenged them. They had they had th- they had like uh, three options. They could either go four hours without their cell phone. Uh, well, it mm-hmm. was no, it was yeah, it was four hours. It was um. There were three options, and I forget all of them, but the one of them was like to go 24 hours without their cell phone. Or, and when I say cell phone, it was any technology. So that was – they couldn't be on the computer. They couldn't be like watching TV unless it was on the background of their family, but they couldn't be actively just sitting there watching it. Um, they could be listening to music if it was done in a way that was like communal. Like if someone had the radio on in the kitchen while they were baking with their family, that was okay, but they couldn't plug in earbuds and kind of isolate themselves in the world. Okay. Um, and that was a real challenge for them because I mean, this, these quotes play right in. Um, we become prisoners and kind of slaves and addicts of the technology. It's like our own personal spice here in America and probably even around the world, but. My challenge yeah. to that is how would they do their homework? He says, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, <laughs> research, typing right, anything. Right, right. Cheating. Cheating. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, the same way we did our homework before we had all this stuff. That's right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not that they don't, they can't use it for good, but this, it, it is a, it's a balance between where's the distraction and where's it for good. And that, and that goes for all of us. Right. Oh, but. absolutely, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I I think I've mentioned before where I'll take a bus ride with kids. We'll be going to a parade or something. Two best friends sitting in seats next to each other, both of them texting like crazy with headphones on, and they they'll go for forty five minutes and not exchange a word. <laughs> you know. Now, when when I was in school, you sit next to your best friend, and the bus driver spends forty five minutes yelling at you to shut up all the time. <laughs> you know, it has really, really changed. There was one more quote. Yeah, go ahead. And this one cracked me up. It it, it made me laugh out loud, honestly. And this is from Vorian Atreides. 
Why do you waste your time and energy writing manifestos, smashing household appliances, and killing each other when Omnius himself still lives? Dude, that was a great quote. <laughs> it was like, look at the bigger picture, man. <laughs> exactly. I just, they, didn't want to, they didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Well, and that was that was right after I think Reina had had her say, right? And he yeah. stood up and, and it was said, right after. Yeah, it was right after they had passed a huge uh, resolution to ban all technology and to not harbor anything technological and that sort of thing. Yeah, which in itself that was my goodness a brutal list of violations, and the punishments were incredible. Oh, oh my yeah. good, like death. For, yeah, and no, like taking out people's eyes and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but which uh, reminds you that humanity uh, at that point, when they pass that, is almost, almost as bad as Erasmus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least heading that direction. No, I uh, agree. But I agree. Willing to kill other humans because they harbor machines and stuff. For, yeah. just, just well, that speaks again to the hypocrisy that's going on. But, it, but, yeah, but when you look at that, that is so much us as humanity. Oh yeah, we, do, we see we, we see it all the time, all the way through history. You know, yeah, how a person is willing to take uh, things out of context to support their argument, and when it's put back into context, it it doesn't even have the same meaning it started out with. No, no. All right. Well, I guess we should move into bad reviews. Well, yeah, actually, uh, we've been going for quite some time here. And uh, I don't know. Do you want to do the bad reviews with the listener response? We could. We could. I could easily put that. What we're thinking of doing, as for those of you, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't really share this, but we're thinking of moving the listener feedback into kind of its own separate show. And I think we'll do the bad reviews as part of that. Yeah, well, at least this time, because we're we're an hour now. Yeah, so, so we're gonna try and. Uh, I think it, we, we can. Right now, we should talk about uh, our ratings and what we think is gonna happen, like what we are expecting out of the next series and stuff like that. All right. Well, since you brought it up, do you want to talk about your rating for the book? And why, yeah. don't, we, why don't we do ratings first, and then we'll come back and do what we think is gonna happen next. Good. Good. So my rating is gonna be lower than I think expected. Okay. Uh, I get, I'm going to give it a three out of five. Uh, and here's the reason why, uh, when discussing this with one of our listeners earlier, uh, I, I said, you know, this is the hardest book for me to put down and it moves the fastest. Yet I feel like it's the most shallow because I wasn't really getting any like deep res- revelations out of it. It was all climax. And it was just like, I, you were just waiting for the next big thing to happen. And that's what kept me going and moving and just, uh, pounding ahead. And like, I wanted to know what the next thing that happened. And none of the new characters, because we had just invested two books and other characters that all died were really deep enough for me to be like, Oh, this is just moving me. But it's overall, I mean, I really enjoyed the book, but. I'm gonna as far as comparing it to the other ones, I think it's gonna get a three for me. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Jim, how about you? Well, for all the reasons that you just stated for giving it a three is the reason I'm giving it a four point five. Is that, is, that, is that your highest rating of the other two? I believe it is. Yeah. Because this book tied up all the loose ends, it gave me all my answers, it was fast paced and moving and 
uh, exciting. And there were just enough plot twists in there that threw me off and, and brought things up that were unexpected. Uh, I literally, there were days where I was reading this for six hours a day. Wow. Uh, I know here at school, hopefully my boss isn't listening, but every spare minute I had, I had a, I had a Kindle in my hand and was reading this. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to say 4.4.5. That's a sign of a good book when you can't put it down like that. That's, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, for me, my rating, my, what did I give the last one? Did I give it a five? I was pretty close. Yeah, I was pretty yeah. close to getting a five. I think this book probably rates a little bit lower. I'm bouncing between a four or 4.5. Okay. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Uh, maybe closer to the four for this one. It was good. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I do have a confession. I started the book a little bit later than I should have. Um, I finished the book literally about a half an hour prior to doing the podcast. Um, <laughs> And so I was like, mm, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we thought I was bad last time when it right. was like 4 a.m. <laughs> no, I, I waited. It was, it was uh, literally about 7.30 in my car on the way to get home to meet with David here to kind of, uh, <laughs> do that. But, um, it was a good book. I just started it too late, but it was the, the storylines. It was enjoyable. I agree, Jim, that there were so many things that were tied up. Um, there were a few points. The reason I didn't give it like a five or closer to a five is there were just some times where, um, I felt stuff happened a bit quickly, um, uh, in the wrap up or as they solved things. Um, mm. but at the same time, I mean, you don't want them to drag out the climactic moments either. I found the first half. I was like, oh, five, five out of five. I'm loving this. Like, uh, and then we hit that 20 year jump and it just like lost momentum. See, it's, 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 it's a 20 years for you, man. Time, this time jumping really bothers you, David. Well, in this book, <laughs> the thing is in the original series, like you'll jump hundreds of years from chapter to chapter. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah. very good. So, uh, so that we, we have coming up the, um, what is it, the Prelude to Dune? What is it called? Yeah, Prelude to Dune. So it's Dune. House Atreides yes. is the first one, then House Harkonnen, and then House Carino. And do those books, um, do they happen on the same, like, so they, do they follow one family in one book and then they follow the, then throughout the t- same time they follow the next family? Uh, that's are, the are general you, idea, although there's overarching stories for each family throughout okay. the whole thing. All right. Um, so it doesn't like, follow it. It's not necessarily, at the same time, they're kind of sequential. Yeah, it's just like this trilogy that they all fit together, but the title usually right, right. is what the focus is. So what do we expect has happened in, oh my gosh, do we know how many years have happened between, between, uh, the Battle of Corn and, um, you know who would know? Bridge of Hithgar, I can never say the name. Did he make a comment on that? He might have made a comment. He made, on yeah, that. he made, well, he made a comment on the time between, uh, Machine Crusade and Battle of Koran, I believe. Yes. Uh, but I don't, he, 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 I hopefully you leave a comment and let us know because I can't remember. I thought he did. How many years between this and House of Trades? I know that House of Trades, I'm pretty sure it ends about 25 years before Dune takes place. Yeah. Or something like that. I could be, it might even be less time. Yeah. I don't know. It's- because Paul is a child in the prequels. Or he's born or something. Yeah, I'm just looking to see if I can find the comment. I thought that he made a comment on 
a timeline somewhere else before, and I just don't, I don't see it right there. But yeah, it was on Facebook somewhere. Yeah, if I find it, we can uh, bring that up then. Um, so I guess the question is, what are you hoping out of the prelude? Uh, I'm, I think, having read it before, I kind of know what's coming, but I, the goal is to learn more about the establishment of these three families and what brings them to the uh, things that happen at the very beginning of Dune. When Dune starts, the three of these families are very intertwined in political, like stress and strife. And there's ancient, you know, there's the Harkonnen and Atreides hatred for each other that, that goes really deep. And you get to see a little bit more of like, what that means in this generation. And then you learn a bit, a little bit more about the Carino uh, household and, and how they control the empire and that kind of stuff. So I, I'm looking forward to relearning that kind of things. Mm. Jim, how about you? Oh, I'm looking forward to seeing how each of the houses, uh, the genealogy goes along and how the information that the sorcerers have, collected uh, plays into how they manipulate the families to try to bring about uh, the events of the original uh, Dune book. I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about the uh, how Norma's um, space folding technology develops and how other uh, navigators become... I think we'll probably see the beginning of the guild and uh, we'll probably watch how the role of spice grows uh, during that time. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think with what both of you said that I'm kind of looking to see, I'm looking to see what has transpired and see if I can put, see if you can kind of fill in the gaps with what has happened. Because I mean, there's such a huge, so much will happen that, by the time you hit the prelude, we're going to be dealing with an entirely new cast of characters and how do they fit in with the old and what's their ties. It'll be interesting. Not a lot of ties. Not a lot of ties. So this, is, this is like ancient, ancient, ancient history. Earth is a myth. Right. When we get to this point, like, you know, if there, I think at one point in the original series, they're like, Earth, if it ever existed, is oh, wow. you know, such and such a thing. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, so where does it leave us here? What we're going to do is, you know, we'll release our listener feedback episode here shortly after this one. But that being said, we, of course, want to know what you think about House Atreides. So remember that you can email us your thoughts on the book. And you can do that to Dunesaga Podcast at gmail.com. Right. You, you can also leave us a voicemail, which I don't think anyone's done yet. And uh, it would be great if, if somebody would bite that bullet and just take that chance. And you can leave a voicemail for us to listen to and play on the show at 188-508-4343. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Dune Podcast, as well as join the conversation that we're also carrying over at Twitter. Uh, Dune Saga Podcast, I believe, is our Twitter name. Right. So uh, – that's the the easiest way to get hold. You can find all those links at dunesagapodcast.com. Uh, Facebook is is pretty active with our our listeners there, as well as we've had a couple comments on the website. So uh, people yeah. are people are talking, and that's great. 
That's yeah, true. in fact, they're talking so much that so we're going to be doing a separate listener feedback show. That's right. So, but I believe that's about it. Yeah. So once again, for the Dune Saga podcast, I'm David Moulton. I'm Scott Hertzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And may Shai Hulud clear the path before you. <laughs>